even with current conditions, the way the market is expecting the oil price to play out over the next couple of years, we'll see an elevated oil price for a couple of years now. And so again, ZEO, a great way to play that. Welcome to Views from the Desk, a special edition of the BMO ETFs podcast. In these timely episodes, we provide the latest investment news and expert commentary on the markets, the economy, and investing. Brought to you by BMO Global Asset Management. The Biden administration continued to make headlines this week, announcing 50 million barrels of oil will be released from their Strategic Petroleum Reserve, and Jerome Powell will serve another term as chair of the Federal Reserve. In today's jam-packed episode, portfolio managers Chris McKinney, Alfred Lee, and your host Mark Rays discuss the economic implications of these decisions, as well as interest rates, currency hedging, U.S. GDP, tax loss harvesting strategies, and much more. Before we hear from the team, please consider subscribing to Views from the Desk on your preferred podcast platform. And for many more ETF insights and resources, visit the Canadian ETF dashboard at bmoetfs.ca. Hello, and welcome to our BMO ETF weekly insight call. I'm your host, Mark Race, head of product for BMO Global Asset Management. I'd like to thank everyone for listening in today. We really appreciate your time. We're joined today by Chris McKinney and Alfred Lee, both our portfolio managers on our ETF desk. Thanks to both of you for joining us. Thanks, Mark. Good morning. Good morning. Well, why don't we get right into things here? I think the the big news of the week has been U.S. President Biden announcing a coordinated release of its strategic petroleum reserve, uh, and that's working with some other uh, consumers across the world, including China, Japan, and a few others. Now, what has the impact been on oil prices looking at WTI? And as well, if you look ahead, what's the impact on ZEO? our oil and gas equal weight uh, large cap Canadian ETF. Thanks. Sure. And as you mentioned, uh, the U.S. announcing that they will release 50 million barrels of oil from their uh, strategic petroleum reserve. As you mentioned, um, some other countries uh, releasing some of their reserves as well. And, you know, this being um, the hopes that adding more supply into the market will help relieve uh, prices uh, of oil around the globe. In fact, what happened after that announcement was almost the opposite effect. There was almost a knee-jerk reaction down slightly, uh, but the oil price recovered very quickly and actually ended up positive on the day um, after that announcement. A couple of reasons why for that. First of all, let's put into context, what is 50 million barrels of oil? Um, that's equivalent to about two and a half days of U.S. demand. Um, so it's not a huge amount in terms of adding supply to the market. Um, and, you know, I think the overall market was is almost looking past this already. Um, again, you know, two and a half days, that gets eaten up pretty quickly. Uh, not to mention the fact that um, the way some of this oil was released um, is in the form of what they call an exchange, meaning that oil will have to get put back into the reserve um, in, in future months and years. And so, the net effect on actual supply is much lower than that 50 million barrels even. Um, again, if we start to look long-term, you know, months and years out. The other factor, of course, is that OPEC is meeting next month. And uh, while they have a plan to start releasing additional 
um, oil uh, as well globally. That's about 400,000 barrels of oil extra per day they're, they're planning on um, releasing. You know, they can simply decide not to do that in the face of this increased demand or in this increased supply um, from some of these countries globally. Um, OPEC can decide to just constrain supply on their side if they if they really want to. And so, again, I think um, muted effect in terms of pricing of oil itself. Um, I think there was some expectation that this would happen. We saw oil prices peak out at almost 85 in terms of WTI, um, almost $85 a barrel. It had come down a little bit before this announcement. And so I think the market was anticipating some um, announcement like this. Um, and then the actual numbers behind it are just not as big as, as potentially what the market was thinking. And again, with some of that being ha- having to, to get put back into the reserve um, in the coming months and years. So um, I think the market overall thought this this would have little effect on, on oil prices. And that's what we've seen so far. In terms of, um, you know, going forward, we think ZEO is actually a great way to, to play, um, you know, that increase in oil price and oil demand. Um, if you look at the price of the ETF, um, it's been tracking the, the, the growing level of, of uh, oil prices globally. And of course, WTI is the most relevant to, um, to North American oil companies. But we think also just seasonally heading into the winter season, um, there's, there's strong demand typically for oil in this, in, in this type, in this part of the year. You know, we have increased travel due to holiday season, you know, Thanksgiving and then uh, Christmas as well. Um, but also just, you know, uh, colder conditions, more uh, demand for heating oil um, throughout the winter months. And so we think demand should continue to be strong through the coming months, um, as well, just an increase overall in global travel, not just related to holiday seasons, but just relative to where we have been. Um, as uh, restrictions continue to ease and travel restrictions continue to ease globally, we'll, we'll naturally see an uptick for demand um, in, in oil and jet fuel and, and things like that. So we think the, uh, the, the dynamics behind the oil price are, are going to continue to be supportive. Um, and again, ZEO is, is well positioned to take advantage of that. Very, very um, correlated to that price of oil. And if we see a, 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 an oil price sustained at this level, um, for a year or two, that, that bodes very well for uh, the oil and gas-related companies. Lastly, if you just take a quick look at the oil futures curve, it is in backwardation right now. So over the long term, the market does think that oil price gets back to that around $60 level. Um, but that's really several years out based on, on where the oil futures curve is, is pricing right now. It looks like elevated pricing for the next couple of years between uh, 60, 70, and 80 dollars or so, um, and so even with current conditions, the way the market is expecting um, the oil price to to play out over the next couple of years, we'll see an elevated uh, oil price for for a couple of years now. And so again, ZEO a great way to play that. Obviously, um, an equal weight portfolio, so you get equal exposure to each of the companies there. It's not dominated by any one or two companies, so you don't have as much operational or execution risk um, that one or two companies might give you. And so a great way to play just that increased overall demand for, for oil and, and energy in general. Great. Thanks for that update, Chris. And when I consider 50, 50 million barrels out of a reserve of 600 million plus, you know, they really are just, just putting a, a slight slowdown into the marketplace. I don't think it's anything that uh, really overall affects the supply and demand in the market. 
Let's switch gears now, but stay in the U.S. As Powell looks set to do another term as the Fed chair, what do you see that as the impact on long-term rates? As well, can you give us uh, an idea or two around positioning and fixed income with this expectation? Thanks. I could take that one. So it was announced on Monday that, you know, as you mentioned, uh, Jerome Powell would get reelected to serve uh, a second term as the Fed chair. Um, so for much of the summer months, you know, it was essentially assumed that he would get renominated. So the you know, market was essentially pricing in that he was a shoe in for the role. Um, in the last month or so, however, uh, the decision has actually ended up being a lot closer than a lot of people thought. So Lael Brainerd, uh, who was just appointed the vice chair, um, she came very close in, in terms of supplanting Powell, uh, in terms of taking the lead role for the uh, Fed. So apparently, you know, Brett Brainerd met with Biden over the last month and, you know, the interview process went uh, very well. Um, the a lot of time for the interview, you know, she went well, well over that a lot of time. Um, so, you know, apparently they clicked uh, very well. Um, but, you know, in the end, I think Biden played it safe in reelecting uh, Powell as, you know, I think he didn't want to introduce a lot of, you know, a lot more uncertainty to the market, um, especially with, you know, reports that uh, his approval rating has slipped uh, a touch over the over the last couple of months as well. So I think the good news is that, you know, if you are an inflation hawk, um, the choice is somewhat good news, given that it was seen that Prainer was seen to be a lot more dovish than, uh, you know, what the market wanted. Um, and also, you know, the market was anticipating or, you know, we're already criticizing that the current regime, which was led by Powell, uh, was already well behind the curve as well. So I think over the next couple of months, you know, there is a good chance that U.S. yields will continue to move up across the curve, especially the short end of the curve as well. So right now, you know, when you look at the OIS market, it's only pricing in a quarter point hike by, you know, by the Fed in all of 2022. So keep in mind, you know, the reason there's a big difference between the U.S. and the Bank of Canada is because, you know, the Fed has to you know, the thought is that they have to wind down their quantitative easing program before um, they could essentially move rates higher. So that wind down of the quantitative easing is going to take essentially, uh, it's expected to take at least six months. So um, right now, if you look at, um, you know, economic numbers, uh, GDP numbers, job numbers, which got released earlier today, uh, if they continue to come in strong, I think it's going to be very tough for the Fed to argue that you know, there's any leftover slack in the economy. Um, so I think, you know, uh, if we continue to see strong economic numbers, it's going to be hard for the Fed to, you know, continue delaying raising rates, um, especially in this current inflationary environment. So, uh, you know, in terms of positioning, in terms of fixed income, we've always talked about, you know, positions like ZPR, which is our laddered preferred chair ETF. We've talked about ZTIP.F, which is our short-term U.S. TIPS ETF. So I'll refrain from repeating those two ide- two ideas. I think those two are still you know, very good ideas for the current environment. But, you know, one ETF that we don't talk about very often is ZFH, which is our floating rate high yield ETF. I think that one's very well positioned for the current environment as well. So, um, you know, that ETF essentially combines Canadian T-bills. So you get the duration from Canadian T-bills. You don't take on currency exposure, but you get the credit spread of high yield bonds through a CDX swap as well. So the best way to think about this exposure is essentially, you know, think of, you know, owning a high yield bond ETF. So you get diversified exposure to high yield issuers, um, but you don't get any uh, duration risk. So you essentially get almost zero duration risk. So that essentially, you know, avoids, you know, taking on interest rate risk in this current environment. But in terms of high yield spreads, 
Uh, High-yield credit spreads essentially have backed up to about 310 basis points, uh, which is widened out from uh, 270 basis points is, is where they traded in the summer. Uh, but in terms of why they've widened, it, it's, you know, I would say it's more technical in nature where uh, because yields have risen, a lot of high yield issuers have come to the market essentially trying to lock in current rates before they move higher. So um, I think, you know, the, um, you know, the recent influx of supply has been more, you know, it's more temporary in, in nature. I think over the longer term, I think you know, demand is still going to outstrip supply. So I think, you know, high yield um, essentially is a, you know, place to consider, especially for ZFH, which, you know, you avoid taking on that um, interest rate risk. Uh, but at the same time, if you look at the high yield issuers, uh, they tend to be more cyclical in nature. You know, a good portion of it is energy. A good portion of it is, you know, uh, consumer cyclical, uh, you know, the consumer cyclical sector, which I think is well positioned for the current environment. Thanks for that update, Alfred. And even the broader high yield market, when you consider around the four-year duration on it, uh, certainly less exposure to rates. So even the traditional ZHY, ZJK are uh, great options to think about bringing high yield into the portfolio. Now let's turn to currency because we have been getting some advisor questions in on currency hedging to the U.S. Certainly thinking about is there going to be a differential in, in how the two countries approach rising rates and impact on FX, but as well, when you look at the environmental disaster going on at West, the, the, the flooding that's occurring, does that cause Canada to, to pause? And does that have a, a broader impact then on the Canadian economy? Thanks. Good question. I think, you know, that U.S. dollar, Canadian dollar exchange rate is always very topical, especially with a lot of advisors and, uh, you know, investors in general. But, you know, I'll start by saying that over the long term. Um, I'm very bullish about the Canadian dollar, but over the short term, however, I think there's a lot of you know, perfection priced into the Canadian dollar right now, um, which is a part of you know a big part of the reason why the U.S. dollar has gained essentially since the beginning of November. So, uh, just to give you a few examples, you know, the OIS market, as you mentioned, is currently pricing in five rate hikes for all of 2022. Um, I think you know overall, um, you know, without a doubt, I think you know there's a high probability that the Bank of Canada is going to raise rates before the Fed, and it's, it's likely they're going to be more aggressive in terms of raising rates as well. Um, but, you know, the assumption that they're going to do five rate hikes in, you know, 2022, I think is, you know, pretty aggressive given that there's only eight meetings. So that's, you know, the, under the assumption that, you know, they potentially, you know, raise rates five out of those eight meetings, um, which I think, again, is, is you know, very aggressive. Um, you know, there's a couple of things that I think investors have to keep in mind um, in terms of rate hikes. When you look at household debt in Canada, still remains at record highs. Property values in terms of residential real estate also at record highs as well. So I think any kind of a significant move in the overnight rate potentially causes, you know, a lot of stress with a lot of Canadian families, which I think have, you know, taken on a lot of, you know, mortgages have overconsumed in, in terms of, um, you know, ratcheting up and, um, you know, household debt, as I mentioned. Uh, so I think in terms of bullets at the uh, Bank of Canada has to use, I think, in terms of, you know, how many rate hikes they can do. Um, so they're not only going to have a limitation in terms of how many rate hikes, but in terms of, of how uh, how much they could raise rates, there's also an implicit ceiling as well. So um, I think they have to consider, you know, how much the system could currently absorb at this point. Um, so, you know, in terms of oil, I think, um, you know, you, have, you also have to look at oil. I think, uh, you know, Chris mentioned a lot of uh, you know, reasons to be bullish about oil over the long term. 
But over the short term, you know, there is the potential of, you know, OPEC potentially increasing supply. Uh, the U.S. also, you know, increasing how much they're going to release from that uh, strategic reserve as well. Um, but over the long term, I, you know, as I mentioned, I, I, I would say I'm, you know, more bullish about the Canadian dollar. But over the short term, I think there's a lot of expectations built in the Canadian rates. Uh, but the opposite could be said for the uh, Fed. So I think, you know, potentially somewhere in 2022, um, you know, the market could realize that the Fed is behind the curve and they need to be more aggressive, especially as, especially if, you know, inflation numbers continue to come in uh, higher than expected. So in terms of the flood, as you mentioned, I think um, that potentially could slow economic growth, especially over the short term, which could uh, potentially add a little bit of slack back into the economy, which you know, could potentially take a, uh, a rate hike or potentially two rate hikes off the table in 2022. Um, but, um, you know, as I mentioned, I think over the long term, uh, still bullish about the Canadian dollar. But, you know, for uh, technical reasons, if you look at, you know, where it's been trading over the last couple of months, uh, there tends to be a lot of resistance around that dollar twenty-eight level. Um, so I think if it a break, breaks above that level, I think it's a good reason to stay you know, in an unhedged product when looking at U.S. exposures. Uh, but if it, you know, hits that level and it starts coming back down, I think that's a good reason to, you know, get back into a U.S. dollar hedge product. So, you know, just to reiterate over the long term, I think there's many reasons to be bullish about the Canadian dollar. Uh, it's a pro-cyclical currency, uh, but just over the short term, I think there is potential repricing that needs to happen, especially with the uh, U.S. dollar and U.S. rates. Great. Thanks for that, Alfred. You're listening to Views from the Desk, a weekly edition of the BMO ETFs podcast. If you're enjoying today's discussion, we encourage you to tune into our deep dive episodes where we take you under the hood of BMO Games product suite. Check out episode 69 in this same podcast series where we take a deeper look at fixed income and equity solutions to hedge against inflation from U.S. tips and real return bonds to base metals and oil. Once again, stay with the U.S. Uh, we've, of course, got GDP readings coming in. And we spent a lot of time talking about inflation. Uh, however, there's whispers of talk of, of stagflation out there. So can you touch on that? And as well, then within your, within your portfolio, give us an idea to how to position around that rising risk. Thanks. Sure. So what we saw on Wednesday morning was the, the second reading of third quarter GDP um, in the U.S. That came in at 2.1%, which was uh, just slightly higher than the first reading of 2.0, uh, but still a very significant slowdown from previous quarters of over 6% um, is what we saw earlier in 2021. And so, as you say, a little bit of a concern around slowing GDP growth while inflation pressures still here, um, leading to potentially the, the stagflation scenario where you have little to no GDP growth, but there's still a high level of inflation. You know, typically inflation comes during strong growth periods, strong GDP um, is generally what, what drives inflation, but you can get into these scenarios where there's actually very little growth, but for other purpose, other reasons, um, inflation is still persistent. And so that's what some people are worried about with this latest GDP reading. Again, seeing that growth slow down, um, but inflation pressure is not slowing down with it. And so, you know, probably one way investors can think about this, if 
if they are concerned about stagflation and thinking this is, um, you know, what's going to be happening going forward over the coming quarters or years, is to maybe start positioning towards those value-oriented um, exposures. So if you're if you're thinking about different factors, um, the value factor generally can perform very well in a stagflation um, environment. And part of the reason for that is that you know companies, value-oriented companies, have value for a reason. They have either current assets or they have um, current earnings, not necessarily strong growth uh, potential or expectations, but current earnings are, are very strong. Similarly, you can look at dividend-oriented strategies that have some of those value characteristics, um, but again, also tilt towards companies that tend to be cash generative. You know, that's why they're dividend-oriented strategies. They have the companies pay out dividends because they have strong cash flow from operations. And in an environment like stagflation, you know, really cash is king. The companies that are earning money today that can pay out to investors today will be more highly valued than those um, that are more about future growth potential. Because again, um, if, the, if the economy is not growing significantly, you can't depend as much on those growth-oriented stocks to you know, grow into their earnings stream. And if there's inflation as well, that means you, um, investors want money today um, because money in the future won't be worth as much you know, when, when there's high levels of inflation. So um, current cash flow and, and currently cash-generative companies tend to perform well in that sort of environment. So again, take a look at value-oriented strategies. You know, um, at, at BMO, we offer a Canadian ZVC, a Canadian equity value. We offer ZVU for U.S. equity value-oriented strategies. Um, and then we have various dividend strategies as well, covering Canada, U.S., and international markets, hedged and unhedged versions as well for those U.S. and international markets. So um, again, we think for investors, worried about stagflation or worried about low growth in general, um, but still that those inflation pressures that we've been talking about, um, look to those cash generative companies, those that are paying dividends today or those that have those value characteristics, um, we think may make a lot of sense to position for stagflation in a portfolio. Great. Thanks for that, Chris. Uh, staying on the same broad topic, but switching to tech, I think advisors have certainly noticed uh, the headwinds in tech, as, as we talk about a couple of these risks. And then they've been asking about our newer covered call technology ETF, ZWT. So can you explain why then this type of ETF, this mandate would be a good way to, to approach tech considering those risks in the marketplace? Thanks. We've been talking a while now about two different types of technology companies that are out there. Um, but first of all, maybe let's just back up and, and think about, you know, the concern when yields are going up, when, again, talking about inflation concerns and interest rate increases, um, how that impacts technology and growth-oriented stocks is that those that are expected, again, to grow into their earnings potential and grow into their valuations um, with future earnings streams, um, are the valuation will be hit when interest rates are higher because again, those future cash flows are not worth as much to investors today. Um, and so that really, you know, no income or low income type of growth uh, oriented technology stock um, as yields go up uh, will, will likely not perform as well as it has in the past with, with lower yields. Now, again, we've been talking recently about two different types of technology stocks. You really have those again, higher growth potential stocks uh, with very little earnings today, but have strong potential for, for the future, 
But then you also have those really mega cap companies that are very cash generative. And I'm thinking about Apple, Microsoft, NVIDIA are, are some of those names, really the leaders of the market right now. Very, very large companies that are very cash generative and, and, and have a lot of current um, earning potential as well. And so I think you have to draw the line between those two types of uh, um, technology exposures. And when you're thinking about higher yields and, and higher inflation, you know, leaning towards those mega cap companies, we think makes a lot more sense. Now, there's still growth potential here. It's just not as high and it's not you know, exponential, let's call it like, again, some of these more growth oriented, smaller um, tech companies would give you. So the growth potential is not huge, uh, but there is growth. And again, these are the leaders of the economy right now. Um, so if there is economic growth, these are likely the companies um, that will be driving some of that. So we think, you know, including these sort of stocks uh, into a strategy that has that covered call overlay on top of it actually gives you the best of both worlds. It gives you that growth-oriented portfolio, but it has that layer of income from the covered call strategy on top of it. And at the same time, these larger cap technology stocks, while again, still having growth potential, um, are not going to you know, blow the doors off in terms of huge, huge, again, exponential growth. And that's really what you want inside that covered call strategy is that slower or lower growth potential um, because as you add in that covered call overlay, essentially what you're doing is trading away some of that upside potential um, in order to get current income from that options um, overlay um, today. And so again, uh, the companies that don't have as much of that future growth potential, we think make a lot more sense to be inside that covered call overlay. You know, really what you want is a slow growth environment um, to really capitalize the most on growth and income within that covered call strategy. At the same time, with higher yields, you know, even if you do mix in some of those um, growthier-oriented companies, again, growth will probably be a little bit slower and slow down a little bit. And so if you're looking at that sort of environment, instead of completely selling out of your technology stocks or, or your sector fund or whatever it is you have, you know, moving it into a covered call strategy that takes a little bit of risk off and is a little bit more allocated towards those slower growth oriented areas of the technology sector, um, we think will we'll, we'll actually perform very well in that sort of environment. And so um, again, a strategy that has that growth potential gives you exposure to technology, but has a very nice income stream um, and that's generally considered you know, very tax effective as well because those option premiums, taxes, capital gains, um, we think makes a lot of sense for investors that, you know, want to position for some element of growth, but recognize that you're not going to get that huge exponential growth when, when inflation is high and when interest rates continue to move up. Great. Thanks, Chris. And certainly a really, really good option differentiated from what's out there in the marketplace. If you're, if you're looking to still access tech, uh, but looking for more mature cash up front companies, and of course, with the benefits of the call overlay. So one more question uh, before we run out of time here. And certainly, as you mentioned, uh, tax characteristics, it's that time of year where advisors look at managing uh, the tax within the book. And when we think about how well markets have done over the last 20-odd months, uh, certainly there's some gains that have been taken. But what about tax loss harvesting? Can you touch on that topic? And as well, comment on a couple of areas where that where you might look at that. Uh, especially considering that we've just put out our estimated 
uh, year-end capital gains on our on our ETFs. Thanks. Yeah, you know, I guess the good news this year is that there's not a lot of areas in the equity market that are trading at a loss right now. You're looking at year-to-date returns. So if you look at you know, the TSX, for example, it's you know up in the neighborhood of 26% on the total return basis uh, year-to-date. Same thing could be said for the S&P 500 when you translate it back to Canadian terms. And you know, same thing for small and mid-caps uh, out of the U.S. as well. Um, but you know, one thing to keep in mind when you're looking at tax law selling is that even though we use year-to-date as a reference point, you should be comparing current prices to your adjusted book value. Um, you know, we use year-to-date uh, re- as a reference just because you know, everybody has a different entry point in terms of where they bought uh, the securities. Uh, but again, you know, this year it's been very tough to find areas that have been, um, you know, essentially losers with with the equity market, you know, experiencing a pretty significant rally uh, year to date. But one uh, area that has seen losses is essentially gold stocks. Um, so gold stocks, even though uh, they were down year to date, they have been experiencing somewhat of a rally over the last couple of weeks as well. So, um, you know, when you look at some of the larger stocks in the sector, so think of, you know, Ken Ross. I'm gold, uh, Barrick, uh, those are down in the neighborhood of about six to thirteen percent. They were down even more in September, but as I mentioned, you know, over the last couple of weeks they have experienced um somewhat of a rally. So I think if you are gonna do a tax loss on gold stocks, I think now is a good time to do it. Um I think you know, selling uh the gold stocks and then you know and uh taking the benefits and crystallizing those losses, you could apply it against, you know, capital gains in other parts of your portfolio and also you know, keep in mind, you could also retroactively apply uh, those losses, you know, in the three years prior, and you could also carry them uh, forward indefinitely as well. So, you know, as you mentioned, it's a very effective way in terms of managing taxes in your portfolio. Um, so in terms of maintaining your exposure to gold, you know, you could always buy an ETF like ZGD, which is our equal weight gold ETF in order to maintain uh, exposure to the gold sector. So again, with gold stocks rallying, I think, you know, now is a good way or a good time to implement that tax law strategy for gold. But I think um, outside of equities, I think an area where you may want to consider tax law selling this year is bonds. So I think, you know, this year is one of those rare opportunities where you get uh, where we have seen losses in the bond market. So looking back, you know, we're looking at the FTSE TMX Canada bond universe, which is the major benchmark for bonds. Uh, the last time we saw a loss was in 2013. And, and even in that year, uh, it was down just over just over a percent overall. So over the last 15 years, the bond market has been up you know, 14 of the last 15 years. So it's been on a pretty significant winning streak. Uh, this year, when you look at the Canadian bond market, it's down about 5.6%. Uh, certain pockets within the Canadian bond market are down even more. So if you look at the long bonds, especially... Um, so I think there is an opportunity for you know, advisors to convert their individual bond holdings and convert it into an ETF. So keep in mind, we have that uh, conversion facility set up for you. So very similar to what we've done for preferred shares in the past. You could do that with uh, you know, Canadian bonds as well. So you could take individual bond holdings, um, you know, show your ETF specialist, our fixed income team could essentially analyze those bonds and essentially figure out what we could convert into an ETF. So the benefit of that is that, you know, you get to crystallize the losses from fixed income, but at the same time, you get the benefits of an ETF if you choose to convert into an ETF. So, you know, with an ETF, you get better transparency, uh, tighter bid offer spreads, you get that, you know, the benefit of that secondary market liquidity as well. And from a business standpoint, you get the scalability. So you're not subject to 
uh, limited inventory. The way you manage a small account is going to be identical to a larger account. Um, so we did put out a tax loss piece. You know, Aaron Allen from our product team put out a tax loss piece. Um, I think in the last couple of weeks. So if you are interested in receiving a copy, just reach out to your ETS specialist. Great. Thanks for that, Alfred. Very timely update considering uh, we're now at late November. So you've really got about a month to get that done if it's something that uh, you're looking to do to manage taxes in the portfolio. So with that, that's all the questions we have for today. So I want to thank everyone for joining us and listening in. Thanks as well to both Chris and Alfred. Uh, some really good insights today covering a lot of areas of the market uh, and as well, again, that timely tax loss selling update. So with that, I just want to thank everyone one last time and have a great day. Thank you to Mark Rays, Chris McKinney, and Alfred Lee for joining us on the BMO ETFs podcast. Today, we heard about investment strategies to navigate record high gas prices and increased energy demands, including the BMO Equal Weight Oil and Gas Index ETF, ZEO, which provides equal exposure to companies in the energy sector. Our experts also discussed the BMO Floating Rate High Yield ETF, ZFH, and the BMO Covered Call Technology ETF, ZWT, as tools to stabilize as interest rates rise. For more information about the other ETFs discussed in this podcast, check out the episode notes, contact your regional BMO ETF specialist, or visit the Canadian ETF dashboard at bmoetfs.ca. That's bmoetfs.ca. The viewpoints expressed by the portfolio managers represent their assessment of the markets at the time of publication. Those views are subject to change without notice at any time without any kind of notice. The information contained herein is not and should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice to any party. Investments should be evaluated relative to the individual's investment objectives, and professional advice should be obtained with respect to any circumstance. Any statement that necessarily depends on future events may be a forward-looking statement. Forward-looking statements are not guarantees of performance. Views from the Desk has been brought to you by BMO Global Asset Management.